Hey, before we get going, I just want to thank our sponsor this week, Enscape. Enscape develops high-quality, real-time rendering and virtual reality software for architects and engineers, integrating design and visualization workflows all in one place. It plugs into Revit, SketchUp, Rhino, ARCHICAD, and Vectorworks, and basically renders your 3D model in real time as you design it, letting you experiment and share ideas quickly and make better decisions faster. For more information and to download a free trial, visit Enscape3D.com. Great. Do you want to say a few words? Hello, a few words. Is that working? Yeah. Perfect. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Thomas Heatherwick, probably one of the most recognizable designers working today. He established his studio almost 20 years ago after studying furniture design at London's Royal College of Art, and his projects have varied from furniture, objects, pavilions, and even vehicles to increasingly larger scale work, including buildings and entire master plans. He's designed everything from the London 2012 Olympic Cauldron to the celebrated UK Pavilion at the Shanghai Expo, a new iteration of London's double-decker bus, and most recently, a series of campus master plans and headquarters for Google. The buildings designed by Heatherwick Studio place a strong emphasis on striking forms and surfaces. For example, the new Google campus, designed in collaboration with Bjarke Engel's group, looks like a giant billowing tent completely covered in overlapping scales of tiny solar panels. Heatherwick's work seems to always strive for visual and experiential novelty, as opposed to subtlety and ambiguity. And while many of his projects have garnered popular appeal, as Heatherwick's scope as a designer has grown, so has the scrutiny around it from architects and critics. A lot of architects, for example, tend to bristle at Heatherwick's amateurishness. The fact that he's not trained as an architect and often doesn't follow the received wisdom and conventions of the discipline. Critics, on the other hand, have argued that Heatherwick's recent work is emblematic of a culture that invests little in public infrastructure, like streets and schools, but still finds billions of dollars to spend on corporate spectacle. And I understand these kinds of criticisms, but instead of repelling me, they somehow draw me closer to Heatherwick's work. I've got to say that this probably is not going to be the hardball interview that maybe you or even I was hoping for. But let's be honest, I'm not really the hardball type. And in a way, that critical path to understanding Heatherwick's recent work, which is typically focused on projects like the Vessel in New York's Hudson's Yards or London's ill-fated Garden Bridge, has been well-worn. Keeping in mind the folly and controversies that might characterize some of Heatherwick's work, this interview is focused more on understanding Heatherwick's point of view how his approach to design has been shaped, and his thoughts on his contribution to the built environment from outside the architectural establishment. All right, so here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, I wanted to start with why you're doing the work you're doing. Your background is in 3D design. You studied in Manchester, and then furniture design, which you studied at the Royal College of Art. I want to start by asking how you forged this path into architectural practice from the scale of furniture to the scale of a building. I could feel there was something weird going on in the world of buildings. Mm. It seems very strange to me that the, the outcomes were... You could feel that they were driven by a conceptual 
strength, but that they were becoming, uh, and I mean, this is, we need to put ourselves back into the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it felt very removed from the, ex- the experience that you had as a little person, teenager, going around the world. Uh, I say going around the world, I wasn't going around the world, I was in London most mm-hmm. of the time cycling around. Um, but it was a bit bemusing what happened to buildings and why they felt that most new buildings being built, and I was brought up in Wood Green and there'd been a new shopping centre built. And as I saw new things being built, they just tended to be sterile and bland. Mm. But then when I was was studying, you'd go to a lecture by someone who had made a sterile and bland thing. And the lecture, at the end of the lecture, you then thought, oh, right, oh, that's quite good. And then you thought, hang on, that's wrong. It shouldn't take a lecture (laughs) for you to, to believe something has value. It should ideally have some value to the unlectured person and then only deepen when you find out more. And so the sense of layering, the multiple layers, mm-hmm. it's like buildings had layer number five was quite strong, but layer one, two, three, and four was really weak. But I believe the public are experts on buildings. They're not experts at quantum mechanics, and neither am I, (laughs) because that's out of our world. It's beyond our scale of understanding in immediate terms. But buildings, we grow up in and around the built environment all our lives, and we know it, and we can spot cliché, and we can tell when something's cheesy and uh, derivative immediately. And so I felt there was a gap in making buildings that could really connect with people. And it seemed to me that the part of that, there was a scale that was missing, which was the scale of the human. And that there was an emphasis on thinking at large scale, the master plan that, that had been driven by the desperate need after the Second World War for huge amounts of reconstruction in cities around the world and but that had become a sort of habit of thinking large and you do need to think large and you do need to think strategic but you could feel when you went to the outcomes obviously I'm generalizing massively here Mm -hmm. but you when you then went up to the creations from that big strategic thinking that there wasn't the human scale thought Mm. and so people were left cold when close up and that's you can say that's to do with craft you can say that's to do with detail you can say that's to do with complexity but there is a connection you get when something is made and has layers of detail and something that can hold your attention so I didn't I didn't study furniture because I wanted to be a furniture designer I I studied furniture at my uh, postgraduate um, Royal College of Art master's degree because it was an in-between scale Mm. between the smallest making of objects which is the the product and the largest scale which is buildings but it seems a sensibility that would be useful and um, and a sensibility that is still something I think it's much better but we've still got a long 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 way to go Mm. for bringing in 
I think, a human-scale sensibility into construction. You talk a lot about the function of emotion in your work. And it seems like emotion is this way of understanding how to override the unnecessary layers of architecture. And by unnecessary, I mean the often impenetrable conceptual layers that we put onto buildings, the kind of the lecture that you need to accompany the interpretation of a building. Mm -hmm. Instead, with your work, it sounds like the way into understanding a building is to be able to feel it somehow. And to be able to feel a building is literally to be able to inhabit it, to abide with it, and to touch it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I feel like those those kinds of encounters, they first occur, they occur most intensely at the scale of furniture. Mm -hmm. And so what you're describing, it seems like, is a way of cultivating a certain attitude or sensibility, first at the scale of furniture, that can then apply to much larger projects or different kinds of projects that are more, I guess, traditionally understood as being architecture. Mm -hmm. I just I want to understand what that process was like in your practice of gradually scaling up from literally the scale of a chair up to the scale of a whole city block. Mm -hmm. And what kind of challenges or adjustments or adaptations you felt like you needed to make with the work in order to have it uh, remain robust or um, kind of stand on its own as architecture as opposed to furniture? And I guess as I'm even asking this question, I'm realizing that in some ways that distinction might be false. Mm. Because I know that for you, these categories are irrelevant or useless. Yeah, to me, it's really funny um, that like, when is something architecture? When is it not architecture? Mm -hmm. I find that a mm -hmm. really funny categorization because it's a functional place. It's mm -hmm. a functional piece of making with a job to do, as there are the smallest functional pieces of designing and making with a job to do, and there's the largest pieces of functional designing and making that have a job to do. And I, th I think that there's a fetishization of the word architecture, mm -hmm. as if it's some spiritual higher being mm -hmm. that has uh, insulated a way of thinking that has been positive in some ways, but hugely detrimental simultaneously and has told a story to itself that um, has given permission for making extraordinary dysfunctional places. Mm. And in a way, a lack of acknowledgement of the catastrophe that's unfolded of boringness mm -hmm. over the last 80 years that, that we, we all need to take responsibility for, a zeal at a series of ideas that have absolutely wrecked cities around the world and blandified them and um, we I can imagine how exciting it must have felt after the war and there was this the, these, the, the mantras of form follows function, less is more, ornament is crime they're so uplifting, you can like yes! <laughs> but um, I think that when you really dig into them, you find that they leave a hollow shell uh, for the public mm. and if, who are we designing for? Are we designing for other architects or are we designing for the public? Mm -hmm. So we need to get more interested, really like fascinated by public response because that's what I'm fascinated by how people receive place. But I think there are, there are aspects of the profession that 
the more things are rejected by the public, the more there's, there's the sense that the public are just ignorant. And it's like, how can they be ignorant? They're the ones who will pull your building down in time when the public don't love something because they influence the politicians, the developers, and everybody. So the public aren't really wrong, but you can't please everyone all the time. But what you can do is make projects that are at least interesting. <laughs> and to me, the challenge has been that there are things where they weren't even interesting at all until you go to a lecture. And you just mm -hmm. think, what's happening? So what I'm hearing you describe now is this distinction between the popular reception and the critical reception mm -hmm. of a project. And I think it's fair to say that as your practice has evolved to work at larger and larger scales, to work at scales that would traditionally be deemed architectural, hmm. um, the criticism has come more frequently in tandem with increasing popular admiration. And so I'm really interested in this tension between what the architectural establishment deemed to be good work and what the public does. I think, I mean, what I want to sort of jump into is there's, there's uh, the, in your, the way you ask the question, you're saying, oh, you go from furniture and then you kind of scaled up to bigger uh -huh. buildings. Uh -huh. Who doesn't do that? You know, most, most people start with smaller projects, anybody you'll speak to, because mm. who's going to trust a 24-year-old to design pieces of cities? It's, mm. I, I, there's no difference. Mm. I sort of refute the idea that I'm a sort of cheeky chappy making benches who mm. suddenly kind of got it into their head. You know, I've, I've been thinking about buildings mm. uh, since I was a teenager, mm -hmm. and I built my first building when I was 21, and I built it, it was a full-size building. And um, I know it was particularly because it seemed so bizarre to me that people often didn't get to build their first project till they were in their 30s. And it seemed to it persuade 40s, 50s, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be part of explaining to me the problem. Mm. And so it seemed you've got to get in there. Even if it's flawed, whatever, do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> get on and do it and start learning. Um, so it isn't, I've always been thinking at a strategic scale, strategy is what motivates me, mm. um, but it takes a while to be really trusted to do projects. But I think um, it's really, I think the public surely is our passion. Surely all your listeners, they, they really want to make meaningful change. I mean, we don't, as a studio, we do no private houses. We don't do millionaires or house are hidden over there or there because our focus is on public facing projects and that's the place where you can make the greatest impact so why are you taking pat on the pat on the back and the head from other building designers it's the public who you're designing for and the public you should be really interested in what they think mm -hmm. because other building designers is a minuscule percentage of the population and you're a bit of a mad person if that's how you decide whether something's good or not. Mm -hmm. But I think you do need something. I, do, I believe it's possible to do projects that it's... It, in your earlier question, there was a sense of either or. You know, you're either a theoretical mm -hmm. or when I say I, you are, I'm just pointing out that this is a thing that comes up. Is sort of If you do things that are popular and engaging and visually enticing and in some way that something isn't conceptually interesting as well. 
And I believe you can do both. That's what I'm aspiring to, whether I, me and my team achieve it. Um, but, you know, there's 250 of us, and the studio is this collaboration of passionate people who share, uh, I feel very lucky to be sharing with them an interest in some of these things we're talking about. And so um, it's, I mean, anything. I mean, you listen to building designers talking about each other. They all say things about each other because we have this funny thing where we're always in competition with each other, which is uh, such a shame. Um, but it's the mechanism for procuring projects. So. Mm. I mean, one practice you're not in competition with is Bjarke Engels. Mm. <laughs> There's a really fascinating collaboration that's evolved between the two practices yeah. around a series of projects for Google, not too far away from where we are right now. There's a, a Google campus that's nearing completion, this kind of landscaper <laughs> in mm. King's Cross. Mm. Um, and then also um, in Mountain View, there are two campuses that are being constructed now as well. And you've worked really closely with Big on these projects. Um, and in a lot of ways, Big have certain common ground with Heatherwick Studio in terms of, I think, an interest in how architecture delights. Can you talk about how that collaboration was first instigated? What made you decide it was a worthwhile partnership the BIG collaboration was my idea. It wasn't Google's idea. Mm. We, we were being put into a competition against each other for the master plan. And you, Bjarke, so I rang him and just said, we could be in competition with each other. You might, do you want to be? We could be. Or what if we work together and we go back to Google and suggest we work together? Interesting. And uh, that, in a way, the confidence I had to know that could work was from collaborating in exactly the same way with Foster and Partners uh, on the Bund project in Shanghai, mm -hmm. where we built four and a half million square foot of workspace and a cultural center in the middle of that. And I, in a way, together with Foster's, we'd, we'd evolved the, the way to do it. And a key part is you need to be, you need to be interested in each other. A collaboration doesn't work if you think you're duplicating each other. And, and so that can work at different stages. And you, it's an amazing learning process. I mean, can you imagine for um, many of the people who are listening to your podcast, the chance to collaborate with Fosters, you know, fully collaborate is amazing. You know, a, a firm with that level of experience and knowledge, it was, it was brilliant. And so we formed a joint team. And in fact, that project came, again, from my suggestion, mm. where we had, we had been chosen for this incredibly big project. Um, and it was clear we needed to work with someone. And uh, I, I'm friends with David Nelson and Gerald Evenden, amazing collaborators. And David Nelson also isn't trained as a, in a conventional way as an architect. He trained as a product designer. Um, and very, very people who are very tuned into solving problems, working, and great collaborators. You don't work in Fosters unless you're a collaborator. Mm. And so we, we sort of evolved this model of collaboration where the key thing is that you are sharing all design, main design decisions and sharing credit and sharing blame, which is great, and you share the money. Mm -hmm. 
but that means that you will never tell anyone where the ideas come from. Mm. And so you can completely relax together and work at really striving to work out what the best thing is because you know from the beginning it's a joint collaboration. It's what not one or the other leading the other. It's almost giving permission for a different kind of thing that you might think you might normally do or they might think they would normally do. But it works on curiosity. And I, th- we, we, I think we had that and we did a fantastic project and amazing cultural centre with a facade that moves, which you may have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was very much informed from the early days of the studio where um, I had been brought in to collaborate on different building projects but the terms were always that we were called the artist mm-hmm. and uh, and each time you just knew that doesn't work that doesn't work mm. because uh, the it was conventional building thinking that was driving the project and then this sort of extra thinking was an add-on and always marginalized in the conventional way and it just became clear we that, that's why we in a way, the studio's um, work, partners, the project leaders, we sort of evolved our own larger system of working. Mm. Um, and, and with BIG, we, originally we just agreed to collaborate on the master plan together and that we would then work out if we were then commissioned to do buildings, which buildings they would do and we would do. And the master planning went so well, we've designed um, five buildings together, major workspace buildings. Hmm. Um, so it was, that, was, that was a really good process. And now, and now finally, we're doing some buildings ourselves. Uh, I know they're doing uh, w- one or two in, um, in the Bay Area, and we're doing three different other things for, for Google. Um, and you know, incredible, forward-thinking, ambitious client that... Hmm. The work BIG and ourselves did really sort of laid the the groundwork it, together with their fan, Google's fantastic team for how they are doing workplace across the globe. I want to talk more about the Google projects and this broader question of how you represent the ambitions of Silicon Valley in architecture. What kind of conversations were you having or what kind of debates took place about what the future of work should look like and why does it look like in the case of the Bayview projects this kind of tensile tent-like structure with a very open plan how did you arrive at that form in the end well I think we were very lucky to have Founders, the the actual founders of Google involved at the very beginning, really with the same incredibly inquisitive mind that created Google at all, posing massive questions to us. And it was clear that they had worked already with different building designers and it hadn't worked because nobody had entered into that conversation with an as open a mind as they had. I mean, it probably helped that I wasn't coming from a conventional building design background, but coming from an innovation-driven, user-centered, emotion-driven design angle. And that seemed to resonate 
working with Google, we were able to push deeper into making spaces that would nurture the individual creativity. I mean, my father studied child development and was, has always been interested in the creativity of everybody. And I always found that sort of fascinating. When whoever he spoke to, he was he's he believes that they are have creative potential. Um, whether that's the homeless person at the end of the street in Wood Green, where I used to live, or somebody he meets in a pub, mm-hmm. or uh, he see is kind of class class blind, and creativity positive, and and I've. I've taken inspiration from that in some ways. And, and when you generalise everyone together and sort of dumb down and blandify because you somehow think that the blandification meets the generalisation, you absolutely miss the point, is that we all have sparks of uh, idiosyncrasy. And so what you actually need to be playing to and connecting with is people's idiosyncrasy and, mm. and affirming that they are special. There happen to be another seven point whatever billion people who are also special in their ways. And it's about trying to make excuses that can open things up for people. And so that sounds maybe a bit wah-wah. No, <laughs> so I kind of understand But the, in, in going back to the actual buildings that we have com- the first three we've completed, then Charleston East that we'll, we'll be completing Easter. We had sites that were right next to the bay where what I liked was that they were not going to be fenced off. And I, I'm not so interested in any, any company that sort of fences itself off from the world and is disconnected. What I liked was that this was going to be part of Mountain View and the, the city of Mountain View. Um, and Right next to the, our site was the Moffat Air Base, which is the NASA Air Base, which has these gigantic airship hangars, which are there from the early part of last century, but not unused. And we just looked at these giant airship hangars and just thought, that's a workspace. You know, that's a phenomenal workspace. Because we're dealing with companies and, and Google and the leadership team were quick to agree that they are not going to, they don't know what they're going to be doing in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, whether they'll be making balloons, cars that drive themselves, who knows what's going to be. And if we're going to make buildings that are fit for hundreds of years rather than the commercial average in the UK, which is only 40 years of a commercial building, we must make flexible buildings. I just looked at these airship hangers and just thought, that's a flexible building. That's a building which inspires your heart to know that it's, you're an engineer that could change things and make real improvement in some way in the world. That's the kind of space that might support that. So we just went back to them and said, what if we don't make you office buildings, but instead make you a series of hangars, flexible hangars that we can then build the equivalent of a village within, inside it that's changeable. So you can, like, like furniture, the building spaces inside have climate control, which allows these to be 
much more flexible in the long term, whether you decide you're making balloons or um, self-driving cars or who knows what that next thing's going to be or workspace. In the immediate desk-based working, we could make a furniture scale which allowed all the spaces that you use for shorter periods of time during the day, like um, micro-kitchens and training spaces and um, meeting spaces to be at the lower level and then give everyone perfect daylight on the top. So we prioritised everybody having perfect daylight at their workspace and there being no hierarchy of workspace because everyone gets perfect daylight. And and a tent is the most efficient way, a tensile structure, to make very large spans. And we could put columns within this, tent poles, at large spacings and make a semi-rigid tent. And then the other main innovation, really, I suppose, was saying we, we should be, if we're really making an environmentally powerful uh, building, it shouldn't then have token environmental moves uh, next to it or on the edges of it. Why don't we make the entire building generate its power? And so not just sticking a few solar panels on like they're post-it notes or postage stamps, but instead make something where the entire roof is that. So it's, they got called dragon scales, but it's like fish scales. And we developed these solar panel system that like shingles overlays itself and makes the entire skin and generates 40% of the power um, and we've got the the rain ponds harvesting all the water that comes off it and so we're harvesting the light from the sky the rain from the sky and then also it's the biggest use of geothermal um, cooling from the piles that are set into the ground all around um, so we're the combination of all of those makes 90% of the energy use of the building mm. and um, it was also an excuse we could uh, re um, breathe new life into the landscape in the bay there at the same time which has been neglected for a long period of time so you were talking about your father earlier and his roots in sociology and his kind of fundamental belief in the fact that everyone has a kind of valuable um, idiosyncratic creative spark in them and it just made me want to understand more the context for your education and the kind of foundations for the way you think about the world around you I know that you were a student at what's called a Waldorf school which is a type of school which was developed by we call him a thinker Rudolf Steiner mm-hmm. um, who was also a, a maker of buildings or at least uh, there's one building in particular that I know of called the Gothenium. Gothianum. Gothianum. Yeah. Have you been? No, I haven't. Oh, you should go. Oh, I it's would amazing. Love to go. I mean, when I look at that building, I think about you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of mystical structure. Mm-hmm. It looks impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like it's from some kind of distant future, mm. <laughs> mm. and yet it exists. And I feel like that description applies equally to a lot of the work mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me about your relationship to Steiner, your experience in being a student at a Waldorf school, and what kind of impact, if any, that had on your attitude towards design? Mm. Well, my parents met through an interest in the works of the sort of teacher, philosopher, 
George Gurdjieff. And that's something that stayed um, deeply interested, uh, sort of engaging my mum through her life. And she still is very involved with that movement. And my father was, they met through that uh, meetings to do with that. And I think my father then moved on and became really interested in Rudolf Steiner and, and all sorts of people. He's a very, very curious person. Um, and so my sister went to the Rudolf Steiner school and then I went for the last three years of my education. So I got a hodgepodge of, I went to lots of, I went to a very academic school, went to state schools, standard state schools, and then ended up in the Steiner school. I think that what's interesting about Rudolf Steiner is that there was somebody just thinking broadly. And he had main ideas to do with um, philosophy, faith, um, f farming, you know, biodynamic farming was something very much developed by himself, and approaches to architecture, to dance, you know, eurythmy. Which is, it's a bespoke form of performance art. It's extraordinary, it's extraordinary. And, but there was a sensitivity within the Steiner system where each classroom is um, painted a gently different colours, and there's a system of art. Um, called veil paintings, beautiful things. Mm. And it's what's interesting to me was, and I got interested, was meeting the Steiner influenced architects. So uh, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I, my dissertation, I went and interviewed various different Steiner architects, and they, they seemed, they, they were very engaged with self build, mm. and I found that interesting. And I remember one wonderful thing where. Uh, there was an architect in Wales working on self-build schools and he was talking about how if you get a plasterer, you know, a plasterer is trained for two years to plaster a wall and it's to get to, to be able to plaster perfectly flat. And he said, I can teach a parent to plaster in three minutes and the wall's alive. And I absolutely love that because mm. it's true. The professional plasterer taught to plaster the wall is plastering out the human touch and plastering out human interest and the infinite so until the point where it becomes a boring flat wall. Whereas the wall that's got wobbles and texture and life you can keep looking at it and keep looking at it and there's still things that will catch your eye in detail. And it seemed to epitomise for me something that I believe you can make less expensively more interesting things. And the university building we built in Singapore, it only cost a bit more than the car park. And no, we just, really? we worked, yeah, we worked around how they promised us that the, with the contracting process they would not go for best value they would go for the cheapest contractor. And cheapest contractor, for example, when you're using concrete, means that the notion of fair-faced concrete isn't there. You're going to have bubbles, stones, holes, misaligned formwork. That was guaranteed. Mm. So we, but then, actually, when we think of the places we love most, I mean, I, I, I'd like to find one of your listeners who doesn't think Venice is good. <laughs> Venice is amazing. But I mean, I have that funny experience in my own team. You know, when 
the newest team member snagging a project, you know, this funny expression of mm -hmm. snagging mm -hmm. to perfect the details of, of, with a contractor of the end of a project. Um, any, a new team member can snag a building within a nanometer of its life mm -hmm. and will be um, perfectionally, like, absolutely irate with the contractor that it's not plus or minus two millimeters or whatever it is. And then you look at Venice, and Venice is plus or minus half a metre. You know, any surface is stained beyond recognition and texture, and yet that's part of its magic. And we've had a sort of crisis of soullessness that has existed in the new things that got built and made with materials that aren't going to become soulful over time. So it's in general, and so I'm really interested. So we, we embraced all that imperfection and worked out some systems, some ideas that would allow us to have utter, unsnaggably rough mm -hmm. <laughs> casting um, of concrete, but where it could become an, a positive about it. And I remember when that building was finished, the learning hub going in, and I spoke to someone who was there, and they were—I mean, they—they they loved it. Really, it was wonderful response. But they were there going, I love it, but I don't understand how old it is. <laughs> is this 20 years old, 30 years old, mm. new? I don't know. <laughs> because it already, that, that making that had, was highly raw making, mm. didn't give clues of newness. Mm -hmm. And I've, that's one of the best comments I ever got on a project, in a way, is when it's... Uh, Timeless, I don't mean that in sort of elegant timelessness. I mean just genuinely someone, you can't feel its age because mm. it's already old or is it new? I don't know. There's a few tangents I want to follow briefly. And one has to do with the fact of the plasterer that you brought up earlier, which to me is a really potent metaphor for understanding, again, this attitude towards expertise. On the one hand, you have the kind of perfect plastered surface that's born out of a studied expertise. And on the other, you have the kind of imperfect, rough, uh, eye-catching surface, mm -hmm. the soulful surface, as you called it. And I think the outcome of that is determined by a kind of amateurishness, which leads to, in some cases, much more fascinating results. And it also reminds me of this other architect Friedrich Hundertwasser, I don't know if that rings a bell, of course it must, whose, whose motto was that the straight line is godless. Mm -hmm. And I think we can look back on figures like Hundertwasser quite fondly, mm. and we can appreciate that work as being itself. I mean, it's really, it seems like it came out of nowhere almost, and there's almost no precedent for it. But when it comes to contemporary work, I think it's much harder to find that sense of appreciation, especially if the work is born out of the amateur or born out of this kind of refusal of disciplinary boundaries or born out of a suspicion of expertise. Hmm. And I guess the reason I brought up Hundertwasser is because I'm interested in understanding whether or not there's a tradition that you're working in. If there are figures like Steiner, like Hundertwasser, other people have brought up Gaudi, Mm -hmm. These kind of more idiosyncratic 
offbeat singular figures. And well, I just think it's it's sort of funny. We we all have to kind of um, figure out ways to get over ourselves and keep fresh eyes. But I mean, look what Hundertwasser did for Vienna. Look what Gaudi has done for Barcelona. I mean, they they are they've really helped those cities to be distinctive in their way. And, and hardly anyone goes to Vienna without wanting to go and see the Hundertwasser house. Is that a comparison though that resonates for you? Well, I'm, I, I'm excited by people who make things that matter to people. And I think, that, and really matter to the public. So to me, I'm really interested in us all as the public. And I'm very wary of professions when they stop looking at the people that actually matter, that's the public while claiming to be socially driven and giving great lectures, but not actually delivering on things that matter to us all. And we're having an enormous emphasis at the moment on sustainable architecture. And it's, I just think there's this weird thing that it's being judged purely on metrics rather than the metrics, plus do people actually care enough to sustain it? And we make, there are so many projects which are apparently sustainable, told to us by professions, and then, but they're not because nobody likes them. And I think that it's unlike painting or music, the power of buildings is that you can't walk away from them. You know, they're there in your life. But the buildings that surround us, we have a duty to do something that adds value to that place. And the incessant blandness that's being rolled out, uh, that, the, that we give permission for developers to think is all right and, and feel that they're being sophisticated by commissioning or city officials. We need a building profession to, to really look through users' eyes at what in the big picture of time connects with people. And I think things daring to have their own personality matters. And I'm sure Hundertwasser was sniffed at totally and probably still is sniffed at. But I best bet people who sniff at what he did still go along and still feel something and still value actually what happened. And so I think that I, I do find Hundertwasser very inspiring. Um, and many people, but most of all people who don't do what they do to impress other people in their profession, but actually the people who, because they don't matter, the people who really matter are the, the public that you're doing projects for, surely. And that's who we should <clears throat> sort of look at history through the eyes of what, what actually mattered, mattered to in the big picture of time to, to the people around us. And the, it's and it's neither one thing or the other. You, you want projects that have great depth. You want a project that's interesting enough to begin with, just enough, that you would then want to learn about that depth that the project has. And I think we've had projects that apparently have great depth, but don't make anyone interested to learn about it. Uh, or uh, there's the fear, this sort of paranoia about depthless moves and they're belittling by saying like lines like one liner or whatever which are handy kind of shorthand uh, for dismissal 
of things that sometimes have more value than they are portrayed to have. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Thomas Heatherwick. Special thanks this week to Matt Bell and Naomi Atkins. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.